O good and gracious God, our Heavenly Father, the Holy One of Israel, we call upon You today. In You we trust. We offer You our praise and adoration. We thank You for who You are. We thank You for the peace and the joy that You give to us. We thank You for welcoming us into Your presence. You are truly the God above all gods. The one true God. The supreme and sovereign Lord from whom all blessings flow. You rule in heaven and earth. You rule the nations. And You rule in our hearts. You fill Your creation with love. Indeed, the whole earth is full of Your glory. Lord, You save Your people. You forgive our sins. You provide escape from the grave. You cast down Satan. You drive out the darkness. You bring in new life and new creation. You give us all prosperity. You are with us in every trial to turn it for good. Your foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men. Your weakness is stronger than the strength of men. Oh God, give us Your gifts today. Give us Your gifts, O Lord, that we may be assured of Your love. That we may be empowered for service. That we might be equipped to do the good works You have called us to do. O Lord, bless us. Be our shield and the lifter of our heads. Hear our cry and receive our praise and thanksgiving. This we pray to You, the one true God. Amen. Our lesson of the day is Psalm 130, a song of the ascents. Listen carefully to God's Word. From the depths I call to You, Yahweh. Master, hear my voice. Let Your ears be attentive to the sound of my pleas for mercy. If You recorded liabilities, Yah, Master, who could stand? But with You is forgiveness so that You are feared. I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits. And in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Master more than those who watch for the morning. Than those who watch for the morning. Place your hope, O Israel, in Yahweh. For with Yahweh is steadfast love. And with Him is redemption abundantly. And He Himself will redeem Israel from all His liabilities. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of Your Word. We thank You that You have inspired Your Word through the Spirit by, recorded by men of old for our benefit, and that You are here with us now by Your Spirit to bless the reading and the preaching of Your Word. May it pierce to our hearts. May we be consecrated as living sacrifices. May we be conformed to the likeness of Your Son. May, be, may we receive Your Word humbly with faith and cling to it with all that we are. Help us to hope in the promises of Your Word this morning. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. There is a very real sense 
in which the Protestant Reformation was started by the Psalms. It's no secret that Luther loved the Psalms, but what many people don't realize is that the first book he ever published was a commentary on the seven so-called penitential Psalms. Psalms 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. In the year 1517, only months before posting his 95 Theses, Martin Luther published a little booklet with his notes on these seven psalms. Not as an academic work for the well-educated, but as a devotional aid for the masses. The penitential psalms gave Luther a new perspective on biblical repentance and on God's forgiveness that helped him to see all the problems with the whole system of selling indulgences, with the whole penitential system of the Roman church at that time. In fact, his booklet, The Explanations of the 95 Theses, is filled with references to these very psalms. So even before his famous conversion experience, even before his rediscovery of justification by faith, even before his commentaries on Romans and Galatians, Luther was immersing himself in the Psalter. He was lecturing on the Psalms in his university classes, and he was writing about Psalms like this for the benefit of everyday Christians. Luther loved all the Psalms, but Psalm 130 was one of his favorites. You could say that Luther lived and died by Psalm 130. The hymn that he wrote based on Psalm 130 was played at his funeral. A rather fitting summation of his life. So like many who came before him and many who have followed after him, Luther recognized the great benefit of the penitential psalms for cultivating repentance and nurturing faith in God's people. Psalm 130 divides into four sections with two verses apiece. Verses 1 and 2 describe the psalmist's plea from the pit. And then verses 3 and 4 meditate on the good news of forgiveness and the godly fear that follows. Verses 5 and 6 show us how to wait confidently on God's Word. And verses 7 and 8 call us to hope in the God who redeems. This psalm ends with a prophecy of Christ's redemption and the promise that He will save His people from all our sins. This psalm ends in the heavens, but it begins in the depths. It is de profundis, out of the depths. As we read through Scripture, we find that there are a number of ways to wind up in the depths. Very often, God's people find themselves in a in the depths, or in a pit, or in a cistern, 
or in the belly of a great fish or valleys precisely because they're obeying God's Word. Think about the patriarch Joseph. Twice in his life, he found himself in the depths. The first time, his brothers threw him in a cistern simply because he had the audacity to relay to them the vision that God had given him about his future exaltation to a place of authority. He wasn't some young, gun, uh, upstart know-it-all. This was a word from God that he was sharing with his brothers. Later on, he ended up in an Egyptian dungeon simply because he resisted the advances of his master's wife. Jeremiah was thrown into a dungeon and then into a muddy cistern simply for prophesying God's judgment on Jerusalem. He was marked an enemy of the state, a traitor for proclaiming God's Word that the Babylonians were God's instrument to bring judgment on disobedient Israel. But just as just as often, maybe even more often, God's people find themselves in the depths because of their own sin. David's son Absalom, who rebelled against his father and attempted a coup, was killed by soldiers and his body, his corpse was thrown into a deep pit and rocks were piled up and he was buried there. Jonah, as we heard uh, from one of our Scripture lessons earlier, Jonah famously tried to run away from God's call to Nineveh and he found himself in the belly of a great fish down in the depths of the sea. And here in Psalm 130, the psalmist finds himself in a pit of his own making. The pit of sin. Pits, depths, valleys, these are all apt symbols for sin and the suffering that our sin brings because they clearly illustrate the effects of our disobedience. Like a pit, sin isolates. Sin cuts us off from fellowship with God and others. Like the darkness of the depths, sin prevents us from seeing the light. We can't think clearly. Sin makes us stupid. We don't even know where we are. Like a pit, sin saps our strength. We're cut off from God's provision and blessing. And the pit is often another term for death because that, after all, is the final result of sin. So there are plenty of ways to get into a pit, but there is only one way out. God must rescue us. The only way to be free from guilt and sin is through confession, repentance, and forgiveness. The only way out of death is resurrection. When we've dug our way down into a hopeless mess, we're often tempted to keep digging as if we can come out on the other side somehow. But any attempt at self-help, any attempt at shifting the blame, any attempt 
at rationalizing or covering up our sin only sinks us down deeper. In our pride, we don't want to take responsibility for our actions. In our pride, we don't want to admit our helplessness. We don't want to declare spiritual bankruptcy. We don't want to be poor in spirit. Like the prodigal son in Luke 15, we want to be spiritually middle class. We want to work our way back into God's good graces. But Psalm 130 teaches us that our only hope is to throw down our shovel and to cry out to God for mercy. And when we come to the end of ourselves, we find freedom and life in the Lord. But this doesn't at all mean that God takes sin lightly. If we fail to recognize the full extent of our sinfulness and God's terrifying wrath against sin, then we will be unable to fully appreciate the riches of God's mercy and forgiveness. The lower our view of sin, the lower is our view of God's grace. And by contrast, the next section, verses 3 and 4, show us how to take sin seriously and how to take grace seriously. If you recorded liabilities, Yah, that's the abbreviation of the covenant name Yahweh. If you recorded liabilities, Yah, Master, who could stand? But with you is forgiveness so that you are feared. There is no cheap grace in Psalm 130. Scripture makes clear that God does record our liabilities. Everyone will be held accountable for their thoughts, words, and actions. Jesus Himself says in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Paul in Romans 2 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Sometimes God's judgment is swift. Sometimes it's unmistakable. But more often, God delays His judgment and gives a chance for repentance. Second Peter tells us that God's delay, the delay of God's coming, the delay of God's promises is for our benefit. It's for our good. God is slow because He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 5 says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Whatever the case may be, we dare not deceive ourselves into thinking that God's patience is a sign that He takes sin lightly. Those who presume upon God's grace and kindness are in for the worst possible judgment. 
at the same time, at the same time, there's the bad news, at the same time, the hope of the psalmist, the hope of every believer is that God does forgive the sins of those who call on Him. Apart from God's grace, apart from Christ, we would deserve nothing but wrath and condemnation. But as we read this morning from 1 John, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, when we humble ourselves before the Lord and throw ourselves on His mercy, God does not impute our sins to us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Psalm 103 says, He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7.19 says that God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 130 finds the psalmist in the depths, mired in his sin. And the promise of God is that He will raise us out of the depths, but He will leave our sins there. The contrast between what God could give us and what God does give us couldn't be more striking. Verse 4 says, but with you is forgiveness. Spurgeon called this a blessed but. But with you is forgiveness. Forgiveness is not theoretical or abstract. Forgiveness is not getting moved from the naughty list to the nice list. Forgiveness is not just some switch that God flips. It's not just a matter of processing the right paperwork in heaven. Biblical forgiveness is covenantal and relational. The word here for forgiveness is associated with the trespass offering in Leviticus 4. To be forgiven is to have your sin removed from you. To be forgiven is to have your guilt borne away by an innocent substitute so that you are pronounced not guilty. Forgiveness is a declaration of pardon. It's the cancellation of a debt. But more than that, forgiveness turns a foe into a friend. Forgiveness is rescue from punishment. It's exoneration from accusation. Forgiveness is restoration of fellowship. That's why I think the psalm says that forgiveness is with God. To be with God is to be forgiven. And to be forgiven is to be brought into fellowship with God and His people. And forgiveness isn't just something God does when He's in a good mood. It's His very nature to show mercy and to forgive sinners. Contrite sinners who flee to the Lord will always be received with open arms. Period. And what is the result of forgiveness? The result of forgiveness is more sin, right? If God just forgives sin left and right, won't people just sin all the time? 
That's what that's the argument that Paul has to refute in Romans 6, right? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Psalm 130 tells us verse 4 tells us that the result of God's forgiveness, the result of his mercy is fear. It's fear. Now, if that seems counterintuitive to you, you're not alone. Down through the ages, copyists and translators who were working on this passage have come across this line and decided that it couldn't be right. And so many a scribe, many scholar of old, intentionally changed the wording to try to make it make more sense. So some translations uh, have all different sorts of of things here at the end of verse 4. But this is it. This is what it really says. Nobody would have made this one up, right? The result of God's forgiveness is that He is feared. We often think of love and fear as mutually exclusive. And we even have biblical evidence to do so, right? Perfect love does what? It drives out fear. There is a difference, however, between servile fear and reverent fear. Servile fear cowers under cruel and capricious power. Reverent fear, on the other hand, involves a real sense of dread and awe, but is primarily characterized by loyalty, love, and devotion. You remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. When Peter, Susan, and Lucy first encounter Aslan, they are struck with this exact sort of fear. The beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw Aslan. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembling. In a similar similar way, God is to be feared because He is all-powerful, supremely majestic, and completely in control. But dread is mixed with love because of God's mercy. Petty tyrants think they're powerful because they murder people. But they only have power over the body. This is why martyrdom, Christian martyrdom, is so potent. Martyrdom exposes the weakness of the sword. Martyrdom exposes the impotence of violence. The Christian martyrs of the early church, you could say, overthrew the power of the Roman Empire through martyrdom. Mercy, on the other hand, as opposed to violence, demonstrates power of a completely different sort and has a much stronger influence than violence ever could. This is what we see play out in the life 
of uh, Victor Hugo's Jean Valjean in Les Mis. If you remember, Jean Valjean had spent 20 years in prison camp doing hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. And when he's finally let out on parole, he is a bitter and angry man. One night, shortly after his release, Valjean shows up at the door of Monseigneur Bienvenu. He's the bishop, and his name is Welcome in French. He's the bishop Muriel, and he asks to stay the night with the bishop. The bishop graciously accepts him into his home, feeds him at his table, gives him a bed to sleep in, but Valjean makes off in the middle of the night with most of the bishop's silver. He takes all the silverware, throws it in his bag, and jumps over the, over the wall and makes his escape. Well, the police capture Valjean the next day, find the silver in his bag, and take him back to face the bishop. When the police arrive, they inform the bishop that they have found the silver, they have found his silver in Valjean's knapsack. But the bishop stunningly tells the police that he had given the silver to Valjean as a gift. He says to Valjean, Ah, here you are. I am glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, and for which you can easily get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? And then the narrator says, Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. I wish he had tried. But the police, after the police leave, the bishop says to Valjean, and this is from the the musical adaptation, but it's it's very close uh, to what the novel records. The bishop says, Remember this, my brother, See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. This encounter, more than 20 years in the labor camp, more than all the punishment, that Valjean had endured, this encounter with the bishop leaves him a completely changed man. And the bishop's one act of mercy exerts influence over the rest of Valjean's life. Valjean goes on to assume a fake identity and start a new life as an upstanding citizen. He even becomes mayor of a town and a business owner But years later, he learns that the police have captured a man they believe to be the parole breaker, Jean Valjean. So, the real Valjean is forced to choose. Will he remain silent and let this innocent man be condemned in his place? Or will he turn himself in and spare the man who has been falsely accused? As he wrestles with this dilemma, the bishop's candlesticks on his mantelpiece haunt him 
a terrible voice inside him. He grabs the candlesticks and a terrible voice inside him says, destroy these candlesticks. Annihilate this souvenir. Forget the bishop. Forget everything. This is your chance to be free forever. But Valjean cannot escape the grip of the bishop's mercy. And so he places the candlesticks back on the mantle and he turns himself in. At the end of the novel, those same candlesticks are on either side of his bed and he dies in the light of their candles. His life truly had been raised out of darkness. And the bishop had bought his soul for God. He had been redeemed. He had been rescued. His life was forever changed by an act of mercy. The bishop's kindness gripped him tighter than any shackle ever had. To hold someone's life in your hands and to give it back to them is a deeply transformative act. And this is the same sort of transformation described by the psalmist. God's forgiveness produces fear. It produces awe. It produces loyalty. It produces love and devotion. When Polycarp was about to be martyred, he was given the chance to deny his faith. And the Roman uh, tribune was urging him to denounce his faith and live. He said, you're an old man. You don't need to do this. And Polycarp said, I forget the exact quote, 80 years, these, you know, 80 years I have served the Lord my master. And he has never abandoned me. How can I abandon him now? How can I denounce him now? In the next section, verses 5 and 6, we find that all of the psalmist's energies that were spent on running away from God are now concentrated on one thing, God's Word. I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits, and in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Master more than those who watch for the morning than those who watch for the morning. What exactly is the psalmist waiting on? His confidence, of course, is generally in the promises of God's Word, in the character and nature of God. But more specifically, his hope is that God will deliver him from the depths. He's waiting, I think, on God's Word of forgiveness. Just like Samuel declared to David that the Lord has put away his sin. Just like the Lord in Isaiah 40 commissions Isaiah to, to proclaim to Jerusalem that her iniquity has been pardoned. The psalmist is waiting. He's desperate for God's declaration of forgiveness. He's been calling on God to intervene and rescue him. And the intervention that he needs most is God's declaration of forgiveness. Everything else is secondary. He knows, though, that God forgives in general. He knows 
theoretically that God forgives, but he's waiting on pins and needles to know that he himself is forgiven. Luther's experience in the church's penitential system showed him that relying on our feelings is only a recipe for despair. He wrote, Contrition is not as necessary as faith. Most of us only strive toward nurturing contrition. We teach men to trust in the remission of sins in proportion to their feelings of penitence. This means that they are taught never to trust in the remission of sins, but to strive for despair. We ought to place our hope in Christ's Word, not in our penitence. What matters most is not how sorry you feel. What matters most is not whether you feel forgiven or not. What matters most is God's Word of pardon that your sins are forgiven and your faith that clings to that Word. But that seems too easy for most of us, doesn't it? We often don't think that God could just forgive sins like that. You've heard people say, or maybe you've thought this yourself, God might forgive me, but I could never forgive myself. Rather than plunge into the depths of our sin and acknowledge our helplessness and our hopelessness before God and cry out from that place, we'd rather, we'd rather wallow around in the shallows of self-pity. There's no rescue from that. We ought to place our hope in Christ's Word, not in our penitence. The psalmist knows where to place his, his hope. And it's his desire to know he's forgiven that helps us understand Verse 6, he says, My soul waits for the Master more than those who watch for the morning, than those who watch for the morning. Who are these people watching for the morning? Are they the watchmen on the city walls who are standing guard? Maybe, but I think it's more likely that these are not military sentinels, but the priests who would have been waiting for dawn to offer the morning sacrifice in the sanctuary. Every morning at daybreak and every evening at sunset, the priests were to offer a lamb as an ascension, ascension offering to God. The priests were to light the lamps that watched over the table of bread in the holy place, signifying God's watchfulness over His people. And these priests had to be vigilant. They were constantly checking the horizon for the first signs of sunrise. And even more vigilant, even more eager than those priests who are seeking to fulfill their duty in the sanctuary, the psalmist who knows just how badly he needs the forgiveness provided by that sacrifice. He waits for the Lord. He waits he hopes in God's Word. Sure as the sunrise. No, more sure than the sunrise. 
God's assurance of forgiveness comes to repentant believers. Verses 7 and 8 tell us why. For with Yahweh is steadfast love, covenant loyalty, and with Him is redemption abundantly. And He Himself will redeem Israel from all His liabilities. The penitent believer who hopes in God will never be disappointed because the Lord's very DNA is covenant love and mercy. In Exodus 34, when Moses asked to get a glimpse of God's glory, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims His name. And He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a mighty One, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's very name identifies Him as the One who was, is, and will be merciful, gracious, compassionate, and faithful. Luther put it this way, whenever we are stung and vexed in our conscience because of sins, let us simply turn our attention from sin and wrap ourselves in the bosom of the God who is called grace and mercy, not doubting at all that He wants to show grace and mercy to miserable and afflicted sinners. With the Lord is forgiveness. With the Lord is steadfast love. With the Lord is redemption abundantly. The concluding promise of this psalm is that God Himself will redeem Israel from all His liabilities. God promises to rescue, to purchase the freedom of His people by providing a substitute. That's what redemption is. To purchase the freedom of a captive by providing a substitute. The Lord Himself provides the substitute. The Lord Himself delivers His people from the bondage of sin. Jesus Christ is God's redemption. He is that substitute. The Lord has provided. He is the One who has borne our sin on the cross. He has died our death and given us His life. Jesus has accomplished your redemption. Your cry has been heard. Your sins have been removed. You and all of God's people have been rescued. In baptism, the atoning work of Jesus was applied to you personally. And you were made a part of God's forgiven people. God's redeemed people. The new Israel. And every time we gather for worship, that promise of cleansing made to you in your baptism is renewed as you confess your sins 
and your sins are absolved. But at the same time, just as the psalmist longed for the coming redemption that the Lord would accomplish, at the same time, there's also a sense in which we also still long for the final completion of that redemption. Each Lord's Day is a preview and a promise of greater things to come. Each Lord's Day, when the pronouncement, when your sins are pardoned, when your sins are absolved, we look forward to the day when we will not only be freed from the pit, we not only will be freed from the penalty and the power of sin, but we and all God's people and the entire creation will be redeemed from the very presence of sin itself. All the damage that sin has done will be undone. All the evil in the world will be wiped away. And God will make all things new. That is our hope. Hope in God's Word. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your forgiveness. With You is forgiveness. Help us to hope in Your Word with all that we are, with our whole soul, our whole being. Help us to wait for You. Help us to take comfort in Your promises, to place our confidence in Your promises, and to look forward to the full and final redemption of all things in Christ Jesus. Give us faith to persevere and submit to Your, to your loving, fatherly care. We pray this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.